Hello and a very warm welcome to Heineken Rugby Weekly with the 42.ie. Every Thursday we will bring you behind the lines with expert analysis and key insights into the week's winners and losers, the shakers and movers, be they on the club scene or the international front. And we'll be chatting to Conor Murray a little bit later on. But before we kick off in earnest, a reminder that if you want to get more from the game, you can join Heineken Rugby Club, whose members enjoy exclusive rewards like match tickets and more. Visit heinekenrugbyclub.com to sign up. Please enjoy Heineken responsibly and visit drinkaware.e for more on that front. And now I'm joined in studio by Murray Kinsler of the 42.e and former Leinster Harlequins Bath and Connachtdale half Andy Dunn. My own name is Gavin Casey. I'm not Ryan Bailey, despite calls from my head. <laughs> on Twitter during the week after another stellar outing in the hot seat by Bales <laughs> led us back to the top of the iTunes charts. Uh, you know, I'm under pressure here. A, a tweet from Kate McAvoy actually arrived uh, while I was over in Boston. Just catching up this week's Heineken Rugby Weekly. Particularly enjoyed Murray Kinsler's Mike Ross interview and Ryan Bailey smashed his hosting duties. That dosser Gavin Casey may as well stay in Boston. To which Murray Kinsler replied... Andy, this is the kind of support I get. Cheers, Kate. Very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about the first part of the comment. Absolutely. Nice words. Nice. Uh, Some lovely words there from Kate, in fairness. Most of them were lovely. Yeah, I'm, right, I'm right with you, Gav. I wasn't here last week either. So, yeah, welcome uh, back, Andy. Look, let's uh, double up on Murray and maybe look, kind of squeeze need, him out next you, week. You need a consistent run of games. That's all I'm okay. saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for us to impose our will. Uh, listen, uh, we'll start with the sort of big news of the morning, I suppose. Uh, Keith Earls has signed on until 2021. Another decent bit of business for Munster in particular. I yeah. review central contract as well. Great to get it done early again as well. You know, uh, this is not going to drag on. And again, I'll say I'm delighted. I won't have to report and try and scrabble around to find out what's happening. Yeah. Um, but it's a it's a brilliant deal for Munster in Ireland. He's playing better than ever, I think. He's found his kind of perfect fighting weight, the perfect uh, physical uh, strength and conditioning program that suits his body. Uh, and you're seeing the results every single time he takes to the pitch. He looks so um, explosive, dynamic. He just looks really fit and fresh every time he's on the pitch. He, he's, he's just turned 31. So... I guess Munster are doing really well out of this as well, that he's getting a new two-year extension on an IRFU deal. So that's not part of Munster's budget for another two years, which, which is great for them. And, and they're obviously keeping one of their best players and a guy who has developed, like obviously a kind of quiet personality at times, but developed into a real leader. Um, and, and that's happened with Ireland as well. Joe Schmidt, even in the press release, sorry, um, the, they, they mentioned that um, he was really important on that Japan and USA tour, just guiding some of the younger guys who have now emerged as really important players for Ireland. So yeah, a really good bit of business from, from the IRFU. Andy, it's uh, obviously, uh, yeah, as Murray mentions, a great mm. bit of business, um, like without, I suppose, sounding the death knell necessarily, like, you know, at 31, he turned 31 earlier this month, I believe, is it going to be arguably his last contract, like, is it too soon to say, I, for an outside back, it's, you know, 33. I, w- I would have thought, yeah, it's it's probably is his last contract, I would have thought, like, so certainly, um, is it a two or three year? It's two-year extension, June 2021. Oh, two-year extension. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. yeah, I suppose, yeah, could well be. As an outside back, like I said, age is pretty significant. The ageing athlete uh, tends to move inwards in sport mm. or, or backwards, as in they end up as a defender or in midfield or holding roles and all these kind of phrases. So to be a back three guy out in the wing, I'd say, is a tricky thing to do kind of post-33, 34. Um, I played... I played with Keith on his very first Ireland A cap uh, over in Scotland and we lost 76-7 oh boy. against Scotland and he uh, it was ragball rovers <laughs> stuff and um, we were coached by Michael Bradley and um, we just had a, a quite a good team personnel wise with just one of the all time kind of horrific 80 minute rugby matches I've ever been involved in. So to ship 76 points against a pretty rank Scottish A-team, that was a nice introduction for young Keith. He was pretty quiet, pretty quiet and callow on that day. And uh, he has, like you said, many, many years later, he's really grown into a, a leader in Munster rugby and Irish rugby. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Sticking with the, the IRFU, an interesting strategic plan uh, has been sort of announced, I suppose. Um, particularly interesting on the women's side of things. Extremely ambitious, Murray. Um, I mean, you're looking at one of the things they're looking at doing is essentially quadrupling the current playing pool. Like, how realistic are these targets? And, and maybe just talk us through them to begin with. Yeah, like, it's always interesting to hear what the RFU are, are planning to do over the next five years. This this plan lasts for, um, and a big big part of the whole strategic plan for Irish rugby was around the women women's game. And this is the women in rugby plan. They've put together a separate document for the women's game. Um, and, you know, it is highly ambitious in terms of 
the number of players they want to get into the game. Even look at adult le- uh, playing level. There are currently 1,341 active adult players. They're looking for 5,000 in, in five years' time. But things like coaches go from 179 up to more than 450. They have 12 referees at the moment in the female game or rather female referees, and they want to go beyond 80 within the next five-year period as well. I mean, there are a lot of different targets. We have it on the 42. There was a couple of articles during the week, but they're, they're very ambitious in terms of how they're going to actually find those players. They're talking about using sevens as a pathway, which um, kind of points to a lot of people's frustration about women's rugby at the moment, that balance, uh, certainly at the top level of the game. Like the ambitious, we mentioned ambitious targets there, but in the 15s game, they're not all that ambitious, really. Consistent top three finish in the Six Nations, albeit winning it once over the next five years, you know, that's not really pushing the boat out there. Qualifying for the World Cup and finishing in the top six, um, not a huge target either. Um, And I think a lot of people have the same worry around uh, sevens and fifteens and the balance there. Um, I asked David Nusifor about this, the performance director for the union. You know why are you investing so much time in the sevens, and he talks about it being a brilliant kind of introduction to, to to new players into rugby. It's it's obviously easier to pick up there, maybe less complexities than than fifteens as well, which is a fair point. But I just would hope, and I know a lot of other people would hope that fifteens isn't kind of almost pushed into the background even further. That's the sense, certainly from um, even some players win the game, uh, and that is a worry. So it'll be interesting to see how that how that develops. Look, those ambitious targets are great. It would be amazing to have five thousand active adult players and six thousand five hundred active youth players in the female game. So let's hope they can fulfil these targets. But but they're certainly very ambitious. Your thoughts on it, Andy? Um, well, I. I I kind of was on the record last year talking about the All Belvedere. Uh, I'm a member of All Belvedere and it's a club that I've always, I went went to school in Belvedere and ended up uh, as an active uh, participating member for un, until right now and I'm nearly 40. So, um, but the, what I, I've seen change in the club in the last 15, 20 years is the involvement of the, the, uh, the women's group growing. So they've got over a hundred uh, members and again I mentioned active members they pay their subs on time at the end of August they run all the uh, table quizzes they, they're kind of self-funding they're an incredibly good group to grow the club uh, a lot of people are stagnant in club rugby and amateur rugby they turn up and they say what can the club give me I think the women's group in Belvedere that I know turn up and say, what can we do to grow this? And if that small kind of microcosm is uh, building across Dublin, across Leinster, down in Limerick, up in Belfast, um, it augurs very well for the growth of the game because at one point there was, uh, I think there was a, a single women's team with one coach and maybe 16, 17 players involved every week. So now they're 100 plus and uh, I, I, while those targets in the IRFU seem lofty I think they're actually realistic and I think the sevens game is is a softer entry for people who've never played if you're older if you're above 18 and you want to get into rugby it's very difficult to do um, but to come in through a, a kind of a softer um, physically softer way to get into it is, is sevens it's, it's you know it's less contact driven it's less set piece driven and uh, it's probably a little bit, bit more fun it's not much more fun on your lungs yeah. but um, you know I think I think it's a quite a smart strategy to try Anthony Eddy is, is running that programme for them um, I think he's, he's been a long time colleague of David Nusifora back in Australia so um, he's brought over his right hand man to try and implement that and he's done a really good job I think both in the men's and women's sevens game but I, I think from specifically the, the growth of the women's game I think it's 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 pretty smart strategy and I think it's viable Yeah I, I guess just a final point on that there is kind of a slight difference between the two programmes because you know you saw last year uh, a couple of players withdrawn from the Six Nations to go on sevens duty that, like obviously that's unimaginable in the men's game so I think there, there's a frustration there talking about equal opportunities and, and treating both games the same way that's probably the frustration in the, in the women's game obviously the player pool is so much smaller that they kind of have to have that balance and and that's what they, they say News 4 says it's a women's rugby programme not a sevens and 15 separate rugby programme so there's definitely balance there but encouraging definitely mm. Now on to the uh, curious case of Christian Wade very briefly uh, he has retired from rugby effectively like Wasps have agreed to release him from his contract he's looking at 
going into the NFL or so the story goes via their, uh, I think it's the International Player Pathway mm. Program. Um, an interesting move. But Andy, like a, a guy probably who has been underutilized, maybe slightly undervalued, would you say? Um, I Well, I certainly get the impression he feels undervalued. Mm. And um, second highest try scorer in the history of the Premiership and he's won English Cup is probably the reason he feels undervalued. Um, in my mind, he's uh, you can you can you can be critical of wingers for um, you know not being defensive minded or not being uh, a guy that's you know very reliable with the ball kicked behind him, and it's a bit of a cliche. But if you've got a winger who can who's as elusive as he is and as fast as he is, I think it's something that probably needs to be embraced in the game more as opposed to being critical of, okay, he's not great with the ball behind him. Like, John Malone wasn't great with the ball behind him. And we all embrace that. You know, he was, because he was changing how the game is played. And, um, you know, it's probably a, a, a deeper philosophical question if you, you know, talking about Matt Letizier. I, I'm a big football fan. But Matt Letizier got very few caps for England. Um, Glenn Hoddle, Chris Waddle, these guys didn't get many caps. Were you an England football fan growing up? Uh, well, I suppose no, I wasn't. I was, I was a Euro '88, but I suppose what I'm saying is, you know, the fair individualism, mm. and you know, it's the Irish Wes Hoolan thing is like, you know, if somebody's a very unpredictable kind of wild talent, do you not pick him because he doesn't fit your structures? And I think it's Hugo Manya came out uh, very much in support and uh, in solidarity with Christian Wade and said. This is a guy that's completely slipped through the net. Yeah, rugby has let him down, I believe, yeah. is what Monia said. Yeah. yeah, and he had th- stuff thrown at him like he's too small. You know, ridiculous things, really, because his injury profile is, is great. And, uh, you know, if you if you had Christian Wade run into you at full pace and total body impact in your embrace for that, you'd feel he's not too small. He's pretty explosive. But, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think his, also, I think his wife or girlfriend is based in the States as well. I right. think that probably played a role in it which kind of dampens down the whole I've you know I've been let down I think there's an element of his own personal life and his relationship he wanted to move over as well but yeah and that, that's how Wasps explained it as well in their statement yeah. there and I think he said it as well for personal reasons like yeah. or so the official line goes yeah I think it's interesting you, t- you touch on those defensive things I, I think it probably does highlight exactly how coaches at the top level now view things like it's 50% even more maybe defensively selection based yeah. and on the outside sometimes it's hard to appreciate that you know like you look at players who miss out on Ireland squads and, and championed by a lot of fans who maybe don't study the defensive side of the game as much as Joe Schmidt does or Eddie yeah. Jones does, for example. Um, especially in an age where defence now is almost even more than attack because you're actually trying to score tries off your defence and have those turnover situations where someone like Wade does thrive, obviously. But yeah, yeah I just think it sums up where certainly test rugby is. There's not as much space for for a guy who doesn't have that side to his game as well. Like, there is space for small guys. We've yeah. seen Damien McKenzie, um, Ches and Colby as well has been brilliant for Toulouse and, and obviously back in the South African mix. So I don't think it's a death knell for smaller players in rugby, but I think we have moved to a point where a coach is going to judge you on your defensive yeah. uh, and all those other little bits as much as he is on your attacking ability. I think, I think it's like risk management as well. Like, if you look at those stats from, from the... Uh, what was it called? The strategic review from the IRFU. Like the the revenue brought in by the senior Irish rugby team, the top team, I think it's about 80%. It's 80%, yeah. So it's 80% of the entire revenue that's generated. Are you going to be like embracing risk as the head coach and a guy you can't quite trust defensively? Probably not. Mm. Yeah, they're under pressure, these guys, making decisions at the top level. Don't have Absolutely. It'll be interesting what Christian Way can do on the. The, the end of many a punt I think in the NFL that's probably generally speaking where uh, he'll end up but he's only the same age as, as uh, Jared Hain when he's there's one thing I, I, you can always see where someone's coming in rugby when you're carrying the ball you roughly have a bit of a, a view in front of you I think that the the big changeover going into the NFL is even no idea where the impact is coming from you're facing the opposite direction to catch a ball and there's guys coming from every angle I think that's one of the transitions rugby players have found from a, I, I read this recently uh, it was a Jared Hayne interview and he, he basically said it, you know rugby is, is one directional there's, there's a group of people in front of you that you have to get through in NFL you're facing in any direction and they're coming from a 360 kind of panorama with a view to trying to break your spine effectively and uh, 
you know, that's that's a pretty significant transition from rugby union. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, like Reggie Bush and Colin Kaepernick were among Haynes fans as well. So yeah. I'm sure, like, they do like the idea of, of bringing people in from other sports. I'm sure if that's what happens with Christian Wade, he'll have uh, plenty of support wherever he lands. You know, 42 players probably haven't seen a squad this size since uh, the 2005 Lions tour, maybe at international level. Um, there are, you know, Rory Scandal can consider himself a little bit unfortunate to not be in that squad. But, you know, three new caps or three uncapped players, uh, three scrum halves who have an opportunity to really put the hand up in Connor Murray's absence. Uh, what was your own take on the squad, Murray. Yeah, interesting to see those three uncapped players in there, but not really guys who are going to be new to Joe Schmidt's methods mm-hmm. and his demands. Um, Will Addison is obviously the one who's kind of come under the radar, I guess, a, a bit for most people. Um, but his versatility is going to be really interesting moving forward in the World Cup year. He's played 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, all at professional level, either in the Premiership or Champions Cup. So he's improved himself in all of those positions. Um, Irish qualified through his Fermanagh-born mother. So there's a, a pretty recent connection there as well. He has all the kind of traits that Joe Schmidt likes in terms of, you know, that fight on the ground. He was really active when he gets tackled, uh, hitting rocks, um, really good aerially, defensively pretty sound. Although I think he missed a one-on-one tackle on Tuolagi in that first game in the champion in the Heineken Champions Cup. So I think a little bit of a work work in progress there. Um, he kind of looks like Jared Payne. I think a lot of people are making that comparison. I think it's fair. He looks like a really intelligent footballer, um, and he has a bit of. Um, something special in attack he's beaten 11 defenders in the last couple of weekends I think he's had 8 offloads as well and you saw him creating that try for Dave Shannon over in, in Paris against Racing 92 lovely bit of footwork back onto the inside uh, fence Simon Zebo and offloads there as, as well so it's not it's also not kind of superfluous the offloading it's always effective and there's always a clear target so I think Joe Schmidt will, will really appreciate that bit brings other players um, into good positions as well with, with his passing game short and long so very complete footballer he's, he's 26 so he has a very good pedigree and I think Joe Schmidt has probably been working on this one for uh, a couple of years. There was a bit of chat around him last time he was up for contracting mm-hmm. at sale. He stayed, um, but but I wouldn't be surprised if they've been in a bit of contact. He's been in camp in Australia during the June tour for a week in Melbourne, also in August. So he's got a really good understanding of what's coming. Ross Byrne obviously did the June test tour uh, with Ireland. Very unlucky not to get off the bench in the third test just with the way the, the, the game worked out, but... I think he's been consistently good for for Leinster without being glamorous or flashy, um, calling play well, leading his team into good positions, and and invariably coming away with points. So I think he probably goes under the radar when when you've got guys like Joey Carberry who who can create something a little bit more um, eye opening with, with ball in hand. Um, and then the last guy, is Sammy Arnold, probably the biggest surprise I guess in this squad, but. You look back to the Six Nations campaign, he went away to Spain with them for that week-long training camp. He was there for the week of the France match. He spent the two-day camp with them in the second kind of down week of that championship as well. So Schmidt's been working on him quite a bit. He's 22, so there's loads of scope for progress with him, but he's a very explosive athlete. You know, I don't think the physical side of the game and stepping up is going to be well, obviously it's big for any player, but I don't think it's going to be uh, the biggest step for him. And, and he sh- he looks really coachable. He's improving all the, the you know, his passing game, uh, his vision, his, his defence has really uh, progressed massively in the last year and he's making really good reads um, and just being aggressive there. He, he's a very aggressive player. Even when he scores a try, he, you know, you saw him against uh, Gloucester, he smashes the ball into the ground, he looks almost angry, but he plays with that kind of chip on his shoulder, that edge that, that certainly helps when you get to test level as well. So three guys who, yeah, add something new, but are very aware of, of what's coming under Joe Schmidt. And you were never likely to see a great amount of experimentation. You know, he's capped those 35 players since the last World Cup. He's he's done that. He's built that depth now. <clears throat> and it's just about kind of refining the squad. Loads of guys in here, but I don't think everyone will go. Obviously, everyone won't go to Chicago and he'll rest a, a number of frontliners there. So it should be a pretty interesting team for that for that first test, I think, against Italy. Yeah, and potential there, Andy, for the three new guys, well, you know, uh, potential new caps to sort of get that baptism of fire in the first test, actually, because, you know, it is Chicago and probably difficult to see some of those guys involved with Argentina and New, uh, new Zealand to follow. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't think, um, I don't think they will be involved in those more significant games, but it's like, a, I suppose, a mini kind of induction program for guys who are... Um, Guys who are 
kind of standing out in those Pro 14 games. I, I'd fully agree with Murray there on um, the the Will Addison summary is, is an interesting one. I think when a coach comes, I think he's been kind of sought out by Joe. I think he's actually looked for him actively as opposed to being passive and said, well, here's a guy who's happened to have played well enough to uh, to raise his head above the parapet. I think Joe actually went looking for, for Will Addison. So it's a bit of a watch this space. I'd like to see... We're never going to know with Joe, but you know where does he feature in his plans? Um, I think for a guy like Joe, who's got quite a lot of of healthy resources at his disposal in the back row, to go and and seek out a guy like Will Addison, and then for him to come in and make the impact he's made, the defenders beating the the offloads, that kind of work. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting one. I think I think I think Joe might involve him more than we suspect. Yeah, and we'll have to see how that yeah. uh, how it plays out. But uh, then looking at the scrum halves, like I suppose Kieran Marmion is in pole position on the basis that he has the most experience at this level. Schmidt clearly trusts him, even at the most inopportune moments in in positions that are are not scrum half. Uh, you know what is it? Twenty two caps. I think Luke McGrath might have six. Uh, and yeah. then jump by time you look at John Cooney, like all three of them, maybe McGrath, like that intercept side at the weekend. Uh, having fine seasons you know it's um it's an opportunity for i suppose for cooney or mcgrath to potentially establish themselves as the number two uh but again i suppose like marmion is kind of there at the moment really yeah yeah well Conor murray obviously missing is is the big thing even though we expected it to happen it's it's a, a massive blow for those two argentina and all blacks tests um yeah, you, you've mentioned the three guys there. Marmion, by some distance, the most experienced at test level. And I think people probably like to cite that example of him on the wing against Australia. But we have to also remember against England in 2017, they're coming for a grand slam. Murray's injured and, and Marmion steps up really well at scrum half in that mm-hmm. game. Those kind of things stay in Joe Schmidt's mind for a long, long time. Even when provincial form is is excellent, a guy like Luben Grab, like tearing up with Leinster last season, those international exposures and proving yourself against England in a grand slam decider for them, it counts for a lot more, I think, in Joe Schmidt's eyes within his system as well. So he won't forget what Marmion has done for him. He's just coming back from an ankle injury, which maybe, I guess, wasn't ideally timed. Um, he's not as game fresh as, as the other guys. Cooney obviously come back off injury as well. Um but listen, McGrath has been excellent for Leinster for for a long time now. His performance in Toulouse was a dip. Certainly, the, there was the the intercept pass. He he missed a tackle kind of in the in the line. Um, there was also a knock on kind of for one of the penalties. So, by his standards, he would have been disappointed. Um, John Cooney has been brilliant up in Ulster. It's kind of almost a pity that he only has the two caps because he looks almost now like the most Joe Schmidt-like scrum half. His tactical kicking has gone through the roof. He's making some really intelligent uh, box kicks, getting really good hang time, uh, and also kicks in behind opposition wingers who are maybe just coming up a little bit early and showing that kind of backfield space. He's got great awareness of of that kind of uh, what's going on in behind the front line. Um, And obviously he has the ability to cover 10 and to place kick as well, which is very handy in, in a World Cup squad. Um, so it will be interesting I do think Marmion is in I, I agree with you I think he's in pole position for those two bigger tests um, but Schmidt I guess has to learn more about these these two guys who are less experienced at test level so I think it's going to be interesting to see um, which one of those two maybe pushes on and uh, and claims that third spot in behind Murray and Marmion who I think are, are pretty much nailed on for the World Cup Just the, the John Cooney thing um, he his place kicking I think that like the what he's bringing in is is um, we don't we don't have too many place kickers that when you know apart from sex that you go put the kettle on when they're going to take a kick that kind of air of inevitability they're getting this one we need two or three kickers to back up Johnny and I think that's his unique selling point. Uh, looking at the centre partnership and it's something we touched upon uh, quite recently but a couple of questions here on Instagram from Jangles Gavigan uh, he asks Bundy and Robbie or Robbie and Gary. And Owen nine two nine two Ireland's centre partnership for the World Cup, uh, three world class centres in Aki, Henshaw, and Ringrose. Maybe get to Jangles one first. He pres- presumably means uh, for November, maybe for those two bigger tests, and then Owen nine two nine two a little bit further down the line at the World Cup. Could be the same partnership, mind you. Yeah, yeah, and you can have Bundy and Gary Ringrose as well. Bundy Aki and Gary Ringrose. So there's a few nice combinations there. It's 
very interesting one to debate. And actually, just last weekend when I was over in France with a couple of the other journalists, we spent about an hour on this uh, over a beer. Um, it's it was kind of splitting the camp. Uh, for me, if I'm just going to give a simple answer. I'd say Robbie Henshaw and Gary Ringrose if, in a World Cup quarterfinal. If I was picking the team, not predicting what Joe Schmidt is going to pick because I think it's very hard to leave out Bundyaki's physicality, but if I was going for a centre pairing there, not to slight Bundyaki, but I just think Robbie Henshaw has been such an integral part of everything Ireland have done over the last few years um, and is combining really good physicality with a, with a lovely skill set as well. Gary Ringrose such an intelligent defender when you're in numbers down situations uh, and obviously a joy to watch an attack so I think those two probably just edge it for me I concur that's fair that's fair is Jangles is that his Christian name or I hope not Andy <laughs> yeah. I have to say no I think I think Mr. Bojangles I, I, I think we have, we have a Twitter friendship actually um, but uh, yeah I'll, I'll have to ask him <laughs> Johan van Grand claims he isn't scouring only Leinster for the uh the best talents, but uh, looking all across the world. We're going to talk a little bit about the provincial production lines and the differences between them. And there is quite a a disparity. Uh, Murray, you were running off a couple of percentages to me there a a minute ago and um, didn't make for great reading for Connacht, but then populations and all sorts must come into it as well. But it's a a discussion worth having, I think. It's a discussion that happens quite often within Irish rugby, just among fans. Yeah, and it's a very complex issue. Um, Just at the IRFU strategic launch, it kind of came up again. Philip Brown, the uh, IRFU CEO, was asked, like, you know, are you happy with what the provinces, uh, aside from Leinster, are doing with their production line? Um, He cited that the 50% of the rugby population and 50% of the entire population is based in Leinster. He acknowledged that Munster and Ulster can do a better job, but he says it's it's very different in, in those two provinces without that big population. He said Connacht are doing great work, actually. Um, and he said it's different in Munster. There's not as many schools. It's more club-based, so each province is slightly different. Uh, the quote is, if you're asking me, are we getting enough from all four provinces? The answer is probably not. And I include Leinster in that. We can be, be better across all four provinces. Um, yeah, we just went through each of the squads just to look at actually how many guys in each of the senior squads listed on their websites are either born or schooled in that province, so come through the system. Um, and the percentage is Munster was 59% of their 49-man squad. In Ulster, it's 50% Ulster-produced players. Uh, Connacht were down at 31%. I guess we'll come back to that. There are a number of different reasons there, um, and population is probably one of them. And then Leinster up at 81% of their 44-man squad they've listed on their we- website. Um, just in the academies, again, the numbers-wise, Munster have 20. Four of those guys are outside from outside Munster. Um, in Ulster, there's 18 listed in their academy. Uh, Connacht, uh, they have around 20 as well, and Leinster are 19 with just one uh, from outside the academy and Aaron O'Sullivan who came over from Wasp so yeah they're the raw numbers but there are so many different parts to this you know um, you look at Connacht like it's not like they're picking off uh, youngsters and taking them away from Leinster a lot of the guys someone like Nii Adi Loken, who wasn't on the Leinster radar Matt Healy who, who was playing IL with Lansdowne um, and have made careers there which is a really important part of Irish rugby I, I, I would hate that we would lose that um, Munster are usually the the target of a lot of the criticism here, particularly with Joey Carberry and now Nick McCarthy going to join him uh, next year. And also the signing of those two South African youngsters, uh, Matt Moore, who's an outside centre, and Keenan Knox, who's a, a very big, promising tight head. Uh, David News 4, the performance director, was actually asked about that and he said he didn't think it was a sign that uh, the Munster Academy was failing and what it's doing. He said, um, what do you say? I suggest that it means there was an opportunity for two young boys who wanted to come to Ireland. They're good rugby players and we've housed them in a system uh, that will allow them to be the best they can be. So he's happy enough with that uh, for the time being. Um, like provincial identity has been a massive part of Irish rugby, um, especially when Munster kind of set out the stall by winning those two Heineken Cups and then Leinster following through with m- massively important uh, homegrown core to, to both of those teams. I suppose to play devil's advocate, you kind of have to ask the question, is that now... I don't know what you think, Andy. Is that the only way to be <clears throat> successful for an Irish province, that it is all based around homegrown players? Um, well, I think it's a it's a huge advantage that we've got. Um, but I, I think provincial identity is a bit defunct. I think, um, you know, with, with you hear 
like the guys on BT Sport and Sky, and they 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 were the first people I ever heard refer to Irish provinces as clubs. So the club side Leinster and it was club sides were Young Munster, Shannon, mm. Cork, Con to all of us. You know that's where your clubs were, um, and the, the provincial identity was was very much. Uh, along the lines of state of origin over in in the uh, in Australia, and um, but that has eroded over time for very normal reasons: professionalism, money, um, players wanting opportunities, um, and it's not so long ago. Like my first captain in Leinster was Liam Tolan from Limerick, and when Munster was a more vibrant uh, rugby uh, hotbed at the time than Leinster was. Leinster were picking off guys from Munster to come up and and try and instill a culture and an ethos into Leinster rugby that was missing. Um, so I don't think Leinster can be overly critical. Uh, I, I get Leo Cullen being really frustrated when guys like Nick McCarthy apparently get picked off. But like Nick probably has ambitions to, to push on. He's a really valuable player in Leo's greater squad, but he's not their most valuable player. So for Leo, okay, it's great to have a guy who's come through the academy to you know and, and Leinster are going to keep growing this because of population because of private schools but ultimately I think the, the idea that um, homegrown players is a huge advantage but I think transition between provinces or now what we call clubs is really important and I, I don't think I think it's just uh, being a victim of your own success for Leinster to an extent that they're, they're going to lose people the, the argument that it comes down to population is doubtless valid uh, like the the numbers alone would suggest that but I'd question as to why there wasn't a greater disparity say in the mid-2000s when the discrepancy between the two populations or, or all of the provincial populations was roughly the same like it's not as if there's been some sort of enormous population burst within Leinster yeah. all of a sudden over the last five or ten years well Leinster do obviously help the Leinster schools um, I know Lancaster goes and, and gives kind of talks to some of the coaches and there's a bit of resource put in that with their kind of development offers as well but the big difference I guess has been the absolute explosion of the professionalism of the Leinster schools you know it's almost like an academy before players get to the academy essentially it is that it's a professional setup before you get even into Leinster academy a guy like James Ryan comes out of school and he's really not far off being ready to play a professional game at a really high level um, as Philip Brown mentioned Munster don't really have that Obviously, are some schools doing great jobs? Uh, like Glen Stoll have really pushed on their program and obviously won the cup uh, this year, so that's encouraging. But it isn't born based around clubs who wouldn't have that kind of resource. So it, it's a huge advantage advantage to to Leinster to have players coming out of that system, uh, and it's really unique, really, in, in the world of rugby. There are obviously strong schools in South Africa and New Zealand, um, but almost not even on that level. Um, and I think it's probably easy for fingers be pointed by people in, in Leinster at Munster and go you know you're taking our players but it is a professional game and things have changed a lot and, and for a guy like Johan van Graan while he does want Munster to produce their own players and, and have that kind of core to the squad he's got to win games at the end of the day um, and in his mind having Nick McCarthy there next season helps him do that more successfully having Matt Moore and Keenan Knox in his academy um, and in Munster's academy it's not just on van Graan's shoulders that gives them a better chance of having a really good outside centre and a really good tight-head prop in, in three or four years' time. Mm. Um, so for me, from that point of view, it's sensible what they're doing. Um, it's not ideal. I think Munster would be the first to acknowledge we need to do better in producing our own players. But as things stand, I can completely understand how they've gone about doing that. And it's not just, we should say, it's not just Munster either. You know, Ulster, 50% of, of their own kind of produced players in their squad and, and Connacht obviously dipping out as well. Everyone has work to do um, but Leinster have a massive advantage with, with those schools. How has that change in sort of school rugby culture come about in Leinster then and not necessarily translated um, across to the other three provinces? Obviously there's a financial aspect to it but say for example the argument that Leinster is more schools based and Munster is more club oriented like if you go through the Munster schools Christians, Prez, Rockwell, Crescent, Munchens, Arts Gullerish, Glenstall like and then you look at the Leinster Academy and an awful lot of those players are coming from three or four schools within Dublin and Kildare. Uh, so like, you know, back even when I was playing incredibly poor rugby in school, when we used to play against schools from Dublin, we'd hold our own. I'm not like, maybe that's still the case, but there's certainly a difference in terms of the, the players' readiness yeah. for professional rugby coming out of Munster versus Leinster, even compared to 10 years ago. Like, Yeah, well, when you, when you play that Dublin school, there's 
15 players in each team uh, and maybe one or two of those guys may end up going into a professional games. So it's it's not just based a, a, across that collective strength, I don't think. Um, like, I don't have budgets for no, this, right, how yeah. the schools work, but I would imagine that they're much, much higher in, in, the, in some of those Dublin schools and the quality of coaching deserves credit as well. There's guys doing absolutely brilliant work in those schools um, and everyone's trying to catch up on that as well. But I think it is tough when you don't have as much resource. That's fair enough, Andy, for your yeah, well, perspective. I, I, like you said, the, the I mentioned population and, and uh, the same thing was, was, the population was the same 20 years ago, roughly. There's not been a huge spike, but it's how, in a lot of troops now, like it's how they're mobilised. And um, within the, certainly within the private schools setting in, in Leinster, um, what, what one transition that's quite not, notable is Teachers used to be coaches. Now, there's very few teachers are coaches. There's guys that come in and their job is director of rugby or head coach of the senior cup team in Blackrock, Belvedere, St. Michael's. That's their job. They're not teaching the kids Monday to Friday. And uh, I got, um, last summer actually got a, a job description. I was I was effectively interviewed to do a head coaching role and I said yeah I'll have a chat with a headmaster and I, I am kind of becoming a dinosaur I realised this because I got this template put in front of me and it was the job description and it was it was literally Monday to Friday like 8 till 6 and there was I could knock it over I thought this guy's asked me what I do but a schools coach and I come in I'll do like two afternoons in, in the week and, and turn up pitch up on a Saturday this was like video analysis 8.45 Player group meetings, back row, front row, you know, and it was it was color coded, templated up for about a 45, 50 hour week. I couldn't get over it, but that's what they're doing. So I think that um, I suppose explains the likes of James Ryan coming out of St. Michael's and his his readiness for pro- the professional game. I know when I came out of school, I just had to learn a lot about how to be a professional. These guys just understand it implicitly because of how they're being coached from age 13, 14, 15 in those environments. I don't know how any of them are getting a leave insert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, the RFU are trying to put more resource into coaching coaches. And like, you don't want to, you know, talk down the coaches. There's so many kind of unsung heroes out there doing amazing work for no money or very little money. Um, most of them probably for no money. So, People in Munster and Connacht and Ulster are, are doing fantastic work there. They just need a little bit more support probably. Um, increased playing numbers as well will help that. So they're the kind of things RFU are, are targeting. Um, you know, all the provincial academy employees are RFU employees. So um, it's all kind of run to the same model at that level now, but it's just ensuring that they can get the maximum out of schools and club rugby everywhere in Ireland. Now time for some Murray and Murray action. <laughs> Had to. Murray, you caught up with uh, Connor Murray. Um, he's did. been doing the rounds, but it was a little bit, you know, he has obviously spoken about the uh, the rumours that were flying around about uh, his injury and whatnot. This is a little bit different, uh, your discussion with him. Yeah, he was speaking at a Pinergy event. He's basically teamed up with them for their We Are 16 campaign. But um, just to touch on the injury quickly, he basically explained he wasn't trying to protect his data. He said he didn't know what the injury was at the start, so he didn't want to put it out there. Asked Munster not to comment on it. Um, he said, listen, we, we did actually say I was managing a neck injury a couple of weeks later, but he felt that everything had kind of snowballed there, uh, as he said. Um, and he talked about kind of crazy rumours that were, everything was getting back to him, essentially. But he's definitely happy to kind of move beyond this saga. Uh, we'll be back on the pitch next month for Munster. Obviously, the November test come too, too soon. But yeah, after all the injury talk, I just wanted to chat to him about his game. So... I thought it was really interesting recently. I, I heard Ron O'Gara saying, uh, he was talking on off the ball, he said that he uh, the Crusaders halfbacks had asked for Conor Murray's box-kicking programme and, and Murray had actually sent it down. So I started by asking him why he's sharing his secrets with New Zealand rugby players. He's so open and willing to learn, Roger. Like he, he was an out-half, so he yeah he has a massive understanding of the game. But anything, anything like that, you know, I'm friends with Raj. Um, looked up to him for years. Now you're friends with him. It's still kind of cool when you, when you think about it. But... Um, Yes, it, it, it's it's kind of a, a pat on the shoulder, isn't it? To kind of say, can we have what, what you do and have a look at, at how you get better? And um, sending down my one of not my program, just a, like a, a drill, a couple of drills that, that we do to, um, to, to kind of test your accuracy and, and, and things like that. And um, yeah, I was happy, happy to help. Um, you're not giving away any secrets, really. I'm sure mm. I'm sure a lot of the other lines do something very very similar, um, more or less or whatever they do, um, whatever works for them. So. 
Um, yeah, keep an eye. Actually, yeah, I, I forgot about that. I'll keep an eye on the, the lads' what box kicks now and see, yeah. see, how, see how they go. Would you and Roger just be friends now or do you still turn to him with, with rugby stuff? Uh, both, both. Um, it was great to catch up with him now recently. At the, we did Monster Patrons dinner in London um, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago now maybe, um, and we were rooming together, which is, which is quite funny. He put up a picture that we were, we yeah. were down in Sandy Park or something funny like that. But... <laughs> um, both, I'd def- definitely be, be both, and and him as well. I suppose, um, as a coach, you're, you're you're obviously not a player anymore. You're out of the game in that kind of regard, and and you're he's coaching in a different part of the world. So I suppose, yeah, the odd catch up here and there, but it's more more so. Every so often, it's just a, a slag a slag text that you get off him. You know, he's you don't know what part of the globe he'll pop up. Like I know he's <laughs> he lives in Paris and he's tra- he's working in New Zealand, and then he's. He's all over Europe then when when he's off and he's doing all sorts of stuff. So it's hard to actually get him in a room. So um, staying in touch with him on the phone is, is, is pretty cool. Yeah, a good contact. But it's interesting about your, your box kicking and I want to ask you about your kind of skills. Obviously now, rightly considered one of, the, one of the best halfbacks in the world. How much time do you still spend on things like your box kicking, your passing in an average week, say? Um, yeah, those basics should never leave you. They're, they're, I remember... Um, Ray Egan said it to me in the academy before. He goes, that, that's what's going to earn you your bread and butter. Like that's your pass, particularly my pass at the time. Um, you know, I think I was always a decent kicker, but like that kind of came in later with the, the tactics of the game and it kind of got recognised that way. But I think passing was always my number one. Um, I just, I always had a ball in my hands when I was younger. Always, always, always. And throwing it off a ball or, you know, I'm from Patrick's so it's a hurling village, but I'd be throwing a rugby ball off my mates. Like, and they'd be like, go away and get your hurling. So no, 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 just catch a few or whatever. So I think I got that uh, the repetition of it like over years without even thinking about it. And then um, started working with Greg Oliver, um, scrum half coach in, in Munster. Um, really good fella. Still work with him. Not as, not as much anymore. I think I've found... I found my my own kind of routine. I, I still do dip, dip in and out of working with him, but... Um, to be honest, they, they they do a lot of work on the basketball courts, and, and I just have to you have to mind your body a little bit more as you get older, and just be smarter about it. And um, I, I do, I still get a lot of repetitions in on, on the pitch, whether before, um, during, or after. Like during training is when you're under pressure passing. Like it's it's all well and good passing a bunch of, of rugby balls like 10, 10 at a time with no one putting pressure on you. But in training, when when there's a little bit of heat on you, that's when you, that's when you kind of you get your real crisp eye in. So, um, yeah, I think kicking and passing, um, you know, obviously you develop other parts of your game, you get a feel for the game, understanding what they're your two things that are non-negotiable to be at a certain standard. Um, and that's why you'll always see nines doing that. Um, yeah. And you probably don't appreciate a good pass until there's an error, right? And that's when it yeah. becomes apparent that the passing has been good. Yeah. Like, how do you measure that and and say, right, I had a, a good pass? Really, yeah, I, I know what you're, you're going to say. That. Um when a when a pass needs to be on the money for for your ten, when it when it's um, you know longer passes that go from nine to twelve off a line out or off a scrum, those ones that that need to be really early on the money, that's when you know when the move. Say you're trying to get to width and um, your your pass checks to twelve, and then it and it, it just stops everything. You can't get it away, and and you're like that started with me. That started with me. That kind of eats you eats you a little bit. So. Um, and then on the other side, if you get a, like a really good pass, I remember there was one in Australia, off the top of the line. It was it was a front ball. It was one at two or towards the towards the five meter. Um, and I just got a, I got a really good hand and I got a really good grip on the ball and I ripped a really nice one too. I think it was to Johnny. I think it was to the ten and it maybe could have been the twelve, but it was just a really like a, a perfect pass. And I was like that that. And I think whatever um, launch move we were doing worked well because that's where it starts and on the front foot if you. If, it, if a move doesn't work, you can take an easy always put it back on the nine. So um, mm. you're under a bit of pressure from the off. But yeah, you, you look at things in big moments as well. Um, when it's when there's a lot of traffic and you're you're trying to find a find a gap or, or a way of getting it to your ten, um, you know, because maybe on a turnover, Zeebs was always really good, was always really good for the turnover. He'd obviously be more often than not playing fifteen, and he'd be in the backfield and on a turnover, he'd want it. Because he yeah. gets in his hands early, so we always had a good relationship that way. Like if I got my hands on the ball off a turnover, you could just launch a, a, a wide pass to him, and and he'd be on it. So um, yeah, just a range of range of passes that you can be happy with after a game. And then obviously when they don't go so well, you you, you kind of you work on that too. So yeah, do you have a favorite pass you've ever made? Favorite pass? Oh, there was there was one. Um, 
against Toulouse, uh, Keats was playing ten. There was one against Toulouse where I think Casey Laurella scored off it when we ha- when we when we beat him by quite yeah. a bit in, at home. Yeah, and it was a quick rock, and I, I picked it up, and I, somehow I was kind of in the middle of a rock, of the rock, um, and I did a, I kind of spun out of it, and I, and I was falling or something. Um, and it just, like I said, on a, it was a line break, so obviously people flood through. There was a lot of air bodies in the way, and I just, just got a really nice pass to Keats. And afterwards, he's like, how did you even see me there? Um, <laughs> and I didn't know, I, I just knew there was a, a back out there. I didn't know it was him, um, and I think we scored off it. So there'd be a, a, few, a few nice ones. Um, there was one for Conway in, in Australia. It wasn't that, it wasn't that extravagant to pass yeah, the one yeah, over yeah. the thing. If Conway was a little bit taller, he would have taken it. It would have been a nicer <laughs> finish, but... I, I thought it was, I was he, he thought I was passing to Jacob Sackdale, but um, it was Conway, so he had to jump and check, and that's when he got his dead leg. Or, is it dead leg he got? The hip pointer, Hip yeah. pointer, yeah, hip pointer, um, and ruled him out of the tour, so okay. uh, he blames me for he that. Still blame you for yeah. that. Oh, yeah, he, he'll always remember He'll yeah. remember a few things. I, I remember talking to you a couple of years ago, and we were talking about kind of nine off the ball, those preemptive support lines. You said mm-hmm. you're still trying to find mm-hmm. a balance. Mm-hmm. Do you feel you're figuring that out now because it's become even more important? Like mm-hmm. there's so many nines either scoring tries or getting that assist. Yeah. Have you found that, that balance? Big time, yeah. Yeah, big time. That's um, nine. It's a massive part of a nines game now, but getting that support role. Um, and that was something I probably had to adjust to um, when I was uh, in the, in my early years as, as a professional. And just seeing not only just like support and and being in a situation to get a get a score or get that last pass or being that link man and keeping the attack alive or just saving energy uh, like so I used to like when I was younger passing and you you take, nearly take the long way around you'd nearly run backwards to to get to that wide rock whereas if you just go off field straight away you're going to be at that rock quicker and you're going to you're going to be in the position to get a, an inside support line and, and and finish off a try or, or two and and get a, get a get the get the ball back in your hands and keep the play going. So sometimes like you get you get in that support line, there's defenders there, but just to keep things moving. Um, and the more you analyze it and not analyze it, but just you see it in rugby. Um, when nines when nines aren't there, so they make you might make a break down the edge and you get tackled, and then it's slow. But when the nine, nine or, or anyone is supporting and keeps that alive, then the whole thing just flows and there's a, there's a much better chance of scoring. So yeah, yeah that's something that you'll never stop thinking about. It's something that you got to keep keep on doing. Like, you, you know, the one you don't make the effort to go upfield for is the one you might have got to score from. So it's um, it's, it's it's something that I'm always, always working on. Yeah. yeah, really important. I guess one of the other ways that nines roles have changed is defensively. Um, obviously before it was a lot about sweeping and yeah. those grubber kick lines. Now everyone's playing that kind of 13 plus two or 14 plus one even where you're pretty much yeah. in the line all the time. Have you enjoyed that development? Because it looks like you actually embrace that physical yeah. side where some lines maybe don't. Um, yeah, no, I do. I think I think it was good for me because it's, um, I suppose in the past, nine's role, like you said, was to cover that chip line and cover any of those kicks in behind. And, and, you know, one in every four games, you might cover one. You'd be covering all the time, but they might try one. In one every four games, and you you take and go. Yes, that's my role done. Whereas when you're in the front line, you've you've way more opportunities to make tackles and, and have an impact on the game defensively. And um, I like I like that side of the game. I think um, I think it's 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 really enjoyable. Um, it's just that kind of confrontation is nice at times. And um, I think the edge defense is, is where I've definitely improved and and nines as well in recent times because we we will always. No matter what system or who your defensive coaches, I think nines are finding themselves in around the edge of, of defensive lines a lot and having to make reads and having to to tell the inside um, the what kind of what kind of defence to use because like they can either hang out to dry or help you make a really good read. So um, I really enjoy that. I think having the likes say Earlsy behind you and telling you like to to close or to do whatever um, it's really enjoyable. It, it's because it's really challenging out there. And that's why like people will gravitate towards the rock or something because the yeah. further out you get, the more exposed you can be. So um, I, I, I enjoy that challenge. Yeah, and I think in the last few years, um, particularly with Ireland, we've made, we've made some good reads and, and had like our, like Jacob, for instance, you know, with the amount of intercepts he gets, you know, that's from potentially the pressure on the inside and him him having the the confidence of the inside defenders to be able to, to go and make reads. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the other way you've used your physicality really well and consistently well is is kind of finishing those tries from close <laughs> range. With the two centimetre tries. Yeah, the two, you get a bit of slagging. <laughs> small bit, small bit. They all come for five points, I say. <laughs> That's it. Um, but, but you've made a fine art of it. Are there yeah. certain little things there, the cues, obviously you don't give all your secrets away, but are there certain things that say, right, this is my chance? Because you're not even, you're not going all the time. No, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that that's the... 
the big thing I think is picking your picking and choosing your moments correctly. Um, and when when there is an opportunity, so basically <laughs> let the forwards batter themselves away until until you see a gap um, and and take advantage of it. I, I know I think I, I actually watch a couple of nines who who do it or who have done it before, and and, and some of them like you say um, they try it all the time, and, and it almost looks selfish at times and. Um, you know, the lads slag me that I finish off all their hard work at times, but <laughs> I, I know myself, I wouldn't, I'm not selfishly trying to score a try, I'm just going when their moment's right. Where, whereas I've seen some nights um, in other countries now uh, just just constantly try and get that show and go and, and all that stuff. So um, I wasn't, it was a conscious effort of mine um, a couple of seasons in that I was like, I don't, I don't score enough tries. I was like, I'm trying, I want to score more. And um, it's amazing, like, I think mindfulness helped an awful lot just visualizing myself doing it and then when the moments come you, you you have the confidence or you know this is like this is kind of what i what i saw happening and then you know it's happened a lot a lot more regularly now um and spotting a few gaps you know there's been a few outside the 22 you wouldn't believe it but <laughs> yeah. there's been a few like that to finish off a few like that too um yeah, it's always enjoyable as well to, to get over yeah the last one i just wanted to ask you about was going back to last season the try against toulon with the Oh, yeah. coming out of the back of the rock obviously really clever yeah. a very rare kind of try I suppose that moment kind of highlighted it as well but but would you spend a lot of time on the laws of the game going through scenarios possible scenarios like that with, with coaches with if I said players? yes all the lads would call me up and say you don't study the game at all <laughs> but um, I think that, I think coach, coaches um, keep you up to date on the laws because um, they're always changing you know I said from from following rugby and keeping an eye on it there they always change there's always something new at the start of the year always something new at the start of the year where I always go oh my god I didn't know that I didn't like particularly like foot in touch when the ball is over the plane like it, yeah. it can be confusing it can be really confusing <laughs> and if you're not all, all over it and then suddenly in a big game you think you're doing the absolute right thing you think oh he's kicked this on the full here I'm gonna and then like you, you make a mistake it's the old law or it's the old interpretation of it or whatever so um no, the one against Zulan was just a blatant knock-on. He tried to play it and it was a knock-on. Um, I think just being confident that, you know, some maybe before I would have been like, oh, it's still a rock or whatever. But um, I suppose you have to push it a little bit too and then and know the ref you're dealing with and like, will he give you a chance to review it or will he just blow a penalty against you straight away? So, um, yeah, somehow, people, yeah, the lads slag me like that. I don't really know what I'm doing, but um, at times I do, at times I actually do. Yeah, well, plenty of time to, to study the law book now, but uh, thanks for talking to us and, and best of luck with the rest of the recovery. Cheers, man. Thanks a lot. Nice one. Great stuff from uh, the two Murrays there. Uh, let's look, uh, well, both backwards and ahead uh, at the four provinces last weekend and this weekend. Like, tough day at the office. A bit of a, probably harsh to call it a reckoning for Leinster, but certainly... You know, um, caught on the hop a little bit, particularly early. We saw Stuart Lancaster came out afterwards. He mentioned a lot the first 20 minutes and the last 20 minutes, particularly when you're going into a kind of a partisan environment such as Toulouse. Uh, where did they lose then, Murray? Where did it go wrong for them, do you reckon? Yeah, the the kind of key thing that stood out for me was the number of times they turned over the ball. I don't think there was a key kind of tactical issue or I actually thought their game plan was quite smart they kept the ball in hand uh, went through a lot of phases they only kicked about 15 times um, and they really targeted the fringes of the Toulouse defence you saw for the inside pass for Sean Crone's try there was a switch with Jack Conan um, even on the intercept that we mentioned earlier on Luke McGrath they're actually looking at that right hand fringe on second phase off a line out attack so I thought it was clever trying to pick off a couple of lazy defenders there um, and when they came back into that position at 27-21 I thought they were going to push on and score but as you mentioned, Lancaster, as always, very honest with it. He talked about mental errors um, and 16 turnovers conceded in this game was the highest they've made this season. Um, sorry, in this game, they conceded 16 turnovers, the highest of this season by by, by a distance. So that was the real key. And, and they were very uh, kind of scattered and very different errors. You know, James Lowe in the first minute, uh, tackle on Colby in the air. They get a line out picked off after four minutes. There's Henshaw getting the ball dislodged for the 6-0 penalty in the tackle by Entomac. Larmore, the kick return where Tamani probably forward passes to him and he goes down a kind of blind alley on the left-hand side, tries to switch back inside and puts him under more pressure, eventually leading to 11-0. Um, and then another penalty where Ringrose forward passes to Henshaw down on the next uh, passage of defence. Roddick is just offside. So you're 14-0 down after 18 minutes. And really, it was very like that Clermont semi-final a couple of seasons ago. Very hard to come back from that position. They nearly did it. But again, in the final quarter, those mental errors, there was the 
Devin Toner at the back of a line out he didn't have a front lifter you know someone had mixed up their call there really basic thing there was another line out fail where the throw was maybe just a bit too high for, for Toner and then Johnny Sexton in the last couple of minutes decides to kick the ball away um, you know if you had maybe pressured that kick it could have been a good decision but he kicks quite long Henshaw, Ringrose and Lowe weren't really ready to chase it so a lot of that kind of uncharacteristic stuff we spoke the week before about them missing opportunities and um, maybe being you know, at 50% and how, how they're converting visits to the 22 into tries and, and there was room for growth. And in this game, the errors when they had the ball really cost them. I don't think it's a massive worry that, oh my God, they've taken a huge step backwards. Um, and in the long run, it may be a good thing mentally as well. But yeah, definitely a lot to work on in, in that kind of management of error upon error. Yeah. Andy, like Lancaster pointed out that they were kind of, they were like mental errors almost, uh, just little lapses in concentration at crucial junctures. Murray mentioned there, you know, you give them, well, what was it, a 14-0 head start in the end, but even the couple of penalties to make it 6-0 at the beginning, away from home, I suppose, pardon the cliche, but against a sort of a, mm. a, a traditionally flamboyant French outfit, they get the tails up a little bit and so suddenly it's on for them. Well, I, I O'Driscoll, I saw doing one of these chit chat Instagram live things that I again don't understand. Uh, Nobody he, does. Yeah, he uh, he was asked before the game, um, what's the most important aspect of Leinster going into this match, and he was very non-technical. He said, uh, like what you alluded to, he said the mentality is probably and and the psychology of how they approach the first twenty minutes down in France is like a good start. Is is probably key down there. I had uh, and I had a coach who was a teacher. He was my Irish teacher, Pat Rogan, and he say, "Tus new lad na a good start is half the battle." And uh, you know, over in Toulouse at fourteen nil down, you are really, really straining to to to, to grapple that back. Um, and I I thought it was instructive because I saw. You know, Brian obviously is so battle hardened through such a long career. His immediate impulsive response to how do you win and to lose is like you you get your first 20 minutes on point and your arousal levels have to be right up there. And it's very difficult for a group as technically proficient as Leinster and as well coached as Leinster to get peak arousal levels week on week on week. And I think they just slipped. I don't think it's any kind of shift in their game or any step backwards. I think they just, arousal levels dropped. They just weren't on form for whatever reason. It's probably very in, intangible. They just dipped going in and they got picked off and uh, they were always chasing. The last 20, there was some really strange and kind of almost inexplicable moments. The likes of Johnny Sexton kicking that ball away. He's got way too much credit in the brank to be critical of it. But he just had a moment that you're, you're looking at as completely out of character, not a strategic decision, not a good technical or, or, or uh, tactical decision. And I just think, whatever the reason, it's just a bad week for them. I'd say they'll they'll be quite critical of themselves and move on. Yeah. Mm. Well, look, it's uh, you'd rather it happen now in the in round two of the Champions Cup, Heineken Champions Cup, than in a European semi final as it did a couple of years ago in the south of France. So, plenty of um, of opportunity there for Leinster to uh, get it right. Monster, I suppose, Murray kind of got the job done as expected, and yet the last. I suppose the closing stages, what did they concede, 14 penalties in the last 10 minutes, something like that? Yeah, uh, 10 and 14, wasn't it? Yeah. Or 10 and 14, rather, yeah. A big, pretty con- crazy. big concern for them and certainly didn't put the game away um, as comfortably as they should have. Um, mm. There was lots of really positive sparks again. Carberry continues to settle in. For me, the biggest one was Ty Byrne. I mean, Carberry has done really well, I think, in, in his first, what, six to eight weeks. But for me, Byrne has been the biggest add-on for Munster. A guy essentially who kind of changes how they play because they've always had that competition at breakdown time but now it's coming from the second row he's he's had four jackal turnovers in, in those two games in the in Heineken Cup um, second only to Francois Lowe at bat and as well as that you saw for the Sammy Arnold try which you mentioned earlier just that catch pass under pressure with forwards kind of coming up in his face pulls it out the back door to Carberry and gives his backs a chance to to kind of finish off a, an overlap um, I think for the development of Munster that's the most exciting part yes they'll be very frustrated at how they close out or rather didn't really close out that game but I think they're in a good position in their group now they got that bonus point they got the win away and the draw away in Exeter a draw um, that felt like a win it felt like a win yeah it did feel like a win Um, so they're in a very good position in their pool definitely can get better but I think really good first two weeks for them 
Yeah, bit of a chastening one then for Ulster, Andy. Um, now, they wouldn't have uh, necessarily been expected to do a great deal over there. Rassing can be... Rassinger. <laughs> we mentioned earlier on when we started the podcast, Munster were kind of hot and cold based on home and away, and Rassing have had a, a weird enough start in France as well. But um, yeah, I suppose they kind of put on the afterburners a little bit, and uh, it wasn't a great shock, I suppose. Well, McFarland said there, there was glimmers of what they're trying to do with that 12-0 lead. And again, the Addison offload to, to Dave Shanahan um, really typified that. You know, they're trying to play an offload game. They're trying to be creative. But um, McFarland also then said we got a big lesson in accuracy. And, uh, you know, that doesn't happen all that much against the likes of 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 Rassing who were blow hot and cold but they they were hugely accurate and they've got star quality all through their their team and um for, from an Ulster point of view though um again I think I we've chatted before about um the year Connacht won the Pro 14 they had the most unforced errors in the league at Christmas yeah. and, uh, and and there's a lot of there's a lot of bravery around persisting with trying to play a new way and I think Ulster are trying to do that under Dan and he's using what he learned in Scotland with Gregor Townsend he's trying to play a bit more expansive and I, it would be great I think he will get the time it's, it's not hard to get feel good factor in Ulster rugby at the moment you know once they see that the attitude is right the players are driven and committed and even trying to play a, a productive and, and in, in a really kind of creative way I think he'll be afforded that time but it is going to take time and, and games like Racing where they take a 12-0 lead and then get a hiding are going to happen. But yeah. They were in, they were still almost in that game coming into the last quarter. It was 30-12. Obviously, it's a long way to make back but even losing bonus point at that stage would be good. They created a couple of opportunities. Addison kind of throws a slightly loose pass and Kernan knocks it on just before that Larry got turned over and off that Kernan knock on, Finn Russell creates that magical try where he chips mm. over the top and, and puts Teddy Hamill away. They were in the game in a lot of departments I think the biggest worry for them is the set piece the scrum has been a real nightmare for them really just looking back on the Pro 14 they're like 84% or 85% win rate on their own scrum which is the second worst just mm. ahead of Zebra their line out as well as the fourth worst statistically speaking and often those stats can, can lie but they certainly back up the impression from watching the game it's costing them a lot of good field position and, and you saw the turning point almost in this game just after Teddy Ariberin comes on um, they absolutely savage the, the Ulster scrum down on the right hand side get the tight head up Anthony Glasson can just kind of stroll off the back of it drawing Jacob Sockdale who was a little bit exposed I think they could have uh, could, could cross over from the, the right hand side and, and helped him a little bit more but he puts a, puts away um, Ariberin in the corner um, and that really changes the game. Uh, another big, massive moment at the scrum, and then just after that, they lose a line out in the in the, in the racing half as well, and that ends with Laurie's try. So those were the key moments in the game again at the set piece. And I think if they don't quickly solve that issue, it's going to keep costing them games because those set piece platforms are are so important, and not getting absolutely destroyed at a scrum like that is is massive in the game. So it's hard to see with the personnel how that can be a, a quick turnaround, but it's certainly a worry for them. Absolutely. There is a question here, actually, one last one from Instagram. Um, we're giving away a book as well. Uh, should have mentioned that. Great book. It is a fantastic book. It goes by the title of Behind the Lines, number two. It's the 42 Dotties new book, a sequel to our great book of last year. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, I'm going to give it to this guy purely on the basis that I couldn't separate uh, our friends Owen and Jangles earlier. Jangles, they had very yeah. similar questions. It wouldn't be fair to, to pick one of those. So uh, Steve L., uh, 79 or else it's Steve capital I I, I do apologise Steve uh, in either case but um, he says early days yet but how are Connacht progressing under new coach Andy Friend yeah they lost away to Sale last mm. week in the Challenge Cup um, inexperienced at half in Conor Fitzgerald but good exposure for him and Colm de Butler and a couple of guys coming through from the academy um, so the team selection wasn't quite at, at their strongest um, and Sale were very strong Chris Ashton coming back for his debut scoring a hat-trick which probably went down really well with the travelling Connacht fans Um but I think they're in a good place. I think it's quietly optimistic uh, early on this season. Um, they've made progress with their attacking play. The defence looks really physical and really hardworking. Um, there are a couple of things around even simple stuff like restarts. They've changed their setup there and they have backs jumping and they're losing quite a, a lot of those restarts, which again is a key access point into the game. So um, lots more for them to do. But I think with guys like Paul Boyle emerging, Quinn Rue playing some of his best rugby, Delan's back, Buckley's playing really well, Jack Carty guiding the team uh, very well as well. So yeah, I'm I'm quietly optimistic about how they're doing. Absolutely, uh, Andy. I 
actually should have mentioned I have a copy of the book here for you. It's going to make for exhilarating podcast audio. Andy seems reticent to take the book. It's not a trap, Andy. Would you like it's to read a us a passage? Chapter two is the best I heard. Uh, looking ahead to this weekend. It's, it's completely different to how I imagined it. It's the first line I read on page 77. Well, there you go. So let's that's hope that's true for the book. That's what, well. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're quick. Still have a bit of pace in here, all right. <laughs> uh, looking ahead to this weekend, we'll start on the Friday night. Uh, also at home to the Dragons. Let's do some predictions. You guys are tied, I believe. Yeah, I yeah. think we are, yeah. Level begging, yeah. yeah. This, this is a big weekend. Something's going to happen this weekend. Something's going to drop here. I'm just going to, let's be real controversial. <laughs> we can't agree anyway. Let's yeah. not agree on, on something. Well, one of you, there's going to be a bit of give at some point. I'll start with yourself, so Andy, with, with Ulster at home to the Dragons this weekend. Oh, yeah. Well, I think Ulster are going to win. Let, let, let's start bringing uh, bonus make... points into it and whatnot. Okay. I mean, are we, are we... Ulster to win with a bonus point, with a try bonus point. Okay. Oh, I'm going to say the same. I can't just pretend I'm not going to predict the bonus points. Bar off. Oh, <laughs> Will we just read the book, lads? Because this <laughs> Well, let's see. Go through the games. What else? What have we got? Ospreys at home to Connacht, also on Friday night. Connacht in Ospreys? Connacht in Ospreys. In Neath slash Swansea. In Swansea. Yes. Uh, so I I will go with a Connacht win. Ooh. Mm. I'm going Ospreys. Oh, okay, so there we go. There we we have go. something different. Interesting. Uh, I actually believe they'll get a win too. I'm not just being different. Nice. Yeah, fair. Uh, here is the grudge match of the weekend. No, not Munster in Glasgow, but Benetton versus Leinster. A, a shot at revenge for uh, for the Eastern Province. Andy, surely they'll get it. Yeah, I would say on the back of the kind of hiccup hmm. in Toulouse, I think, yeah, I can't see anything else other than probably a bonus point win away. Yeah, I agree. They're going to have a couple of Irish internationals there as well. Some of the guys who maybe won't play in Chicago. So I think they'll have a pretty strong response. And Monster at home to Glasgow. Uh, you know, it's an interesting fixture, this one. A it's a vicious of, uh, fixture. It's a little bit, yeah, there's a lot of needle between these two teams. Obviously, Conor Murray won't be involved uh, in this uh, particular entry to the saga that is Monster versus Glasgow. Murray, which way do you see it going? I'm going to go for a Glasgow win away on the road in Tone Park. Oh my day. It's a vicious fixture and the Munster fans aren't going to like it, but I just have a feeling Glasgow are going to nick it. Goodness yeah, gracious I would me. be the same actually on that. So we only disagree on the Connacht. Ospreys, come on Ospreys. So yeah. there's only one that can possibly separate you next week. Uh, that's all we've got time for. Thanks a million gents. Appreciate Cheers. it. So until next Thursday, enjoy the rugby over the weekend. Uh, reminder, that if you want to get more from the game, you can join Heineken Rugby Club, whose members enjoy exclusive rewards like match tickets and more. Visit HeinekenRugbyClub.com to sign up. Please enjoy Heineken responsibly and visit DrinkAware.e for more on that front. And a reminder as well that behind the lines, number two is uh, is on sale now. Let's take it to the top of the uh, book charts. We're top of the iTunes charts. Uh, well, maybe not at the moment. Get us back up there for the love of God. Save my job. Bales is on my case. Okay, guys. Cheers. Thanks a lot. <laughs>